Good afternoon, distinguished delegates. It gives me great pleasure to declare open the 28th session of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I pray with all my heart that COP28 will be another critical turning point towards genuine transformational action at a time when already, as scientists have been warning for so long, we are seeing alarming tipping points being reached. We must work very hard into taking real actions to decarbonizing fossil fuels. It's been a week of big moments at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai. More than 90,000 participants from all over the world were here. It was busy, it was bustling, and a lot has been going on. We've seen heads of state, ministers, global leaders, decision makers, experts, and advocates from over 190 countries. Every corner of Expo City, where COP is being held, was full of energy discussions and panels on diverse topics from policy commitments and climate finance to innovations and health. And the impact is poised to resonate globally. But what were the most important announcements? Which countries are going to benefit from them? And how soon can we see or feel any change? This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Sarah Forster. And this week, we're delving into the latest developments in climate action and global initiatives at COP28. But before we start, if you want to get the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then please follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, we are at the heart of COP28's Blue Zone, and I'm joined by two of the Nationals' correspondents, John Dennehy and Tim Stickings. Now, just to kick things off, I'm going to ask both of you this question. Can you share your initial impressions of both the atmosphere and the discussions down here during the first week? Um, Tim, I'll come to you first. Yeah, hi. So the atmosphere has been remarkably positive for the first few days of a COP, and don't take that from us. Take it from the people we've spoken to, like campaigners who are generally pretty hard to please at these kind of cops, but have been very happy with some of the early decisions. Leaders who've come here have praised the organization and hospitality. And the one thing we really keep hearing from negotiators and everyone involved here is that they want that positive spirit to be taken forward into the second week when you start to hit some of the really difficult issues around this cop. Yeah, so cops tend to start off very, very hectic because you've got a lot of world leaders arriving, then a lot of big announcements. And th- this year, it's really super hectic. We have a lot of really big announcements coming through from the UAE. The size is about double in terms of delegates and previous cops. And also the site is considerably bigger than even last year's in Sharm el-Sheikh. One of the delegates I spoke to said he walked about 80 kilometers so far, even just in a few days. So that gives you a sense of the scale of the place. We also have seen a lot of climate advocates staging protests, you know, really making their voices heard. And I think that's really interesting in the sense that it really gives the negotiators a real push to get on and find a really good agreement. I mean, I think we all remember the scale of the the site here from just Expo 2020. You definitely get your steps in. Um, John, I'll stick with you for a minute, if that's okay. You've reported on what's happening behind closed doors here at COP28. Um, You've said it's easy to forget that there are negotiations taking place. So can you give our listeners just a little bit of background on what's happening in these closed conference rooms? Yeah, so I don't want to go too inside baseball here, but essentially you got you got what you got the non-negotiated outcome of COP, which are all these announcements by, by the UAE and all these side deals. And then you have the negotiated outcome, which is kind of what's happening behind closed doors. This is really what's at heart of every COP. You've closed to 200 parties. Uh, negotiating on really key issues for the future of the planet, like the future of fossil fuels, uh, scaling up climate finance, the loss and damage fund. So all this is happening in rooms that are closed off to the public. It's hard to get a sense of what's happening. We're trying to, but really that is 
one of the most important parts of COP. The reason why I find this so interesting is that it is it can be easy to be cynical about the COP process, uh, but this is a very rare uh, occasion, I think, where you have so many countries represented and so many countries have a voice from places like Samoa, uh, you know, a small island state on the front lines of the crisis, dealing with the problem, not having caused it really, uh, and they're sitting side by side with some of the big emitters. So to watch that unfold or try to watch it unfold and see what's happening is really, really, really important. Tim, I'll come back to you. So if you can cast your mind all the way back to the start of COP, um, COP28 opened with a really historic deal, and that was to finally launch and capitalise a fund that helps the most vulnerable countries deal with the worst effects of climate change. It's uh, called the Loss and Damage Fund. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what is this fund and which countries exactly are going to benefit from it? Yeah, so loss and damage is one of these bits of UN jargon that surrounds these talks. What it means is what happens when climate change really hits home. Say you have a low-lying island that's hit by rising sea levels, or the coast becomes uninhabitable, or there's extreme weather that leads to floods or droughts or this sort of thing. Now, ideally, the point of these talks is that you stop all that happening in the first place, but sometimes it's too late or it can't be helped anymore. And then that's called loss and damage when those effects hit home. And how to deal with this and how to meet the cost of this has been a a long-running talking point in COPs over the years. And then finally, on the first day of this COP, we got an agreement to set up a fund um, in which rich countries will take the lead in paying into this fund and then vulnerable countries will be able to draw from it. Now, exactly which countries that is, there's still a bit of negotiating still to do and the size of the pledges from the developed countries contributing to it are still coming in. But it was certainly a big breakthrough moment and a good way to start the COP. It was definitely a very uh, notable way to start the event. Um, The first few days of COP have seen the World Climate Action Summit Uh, We've seen lots of presidents and prime ministers. Uh, John, what were the key takeaways from that summit? So the the leaders come at the start of the summit to sort of galvanize negotiating teams and to try and set the tone for for COP. I mean, they also are here to meet other leaders and and sign bilateral deals. But but really, the aim is to try and set a really good, positive tone for for the crucial talks. There's been some interesting ones. I mean, King Charles' talk was pretty good, where he said the world was embarking on a vast, frightening experiment. Uh, Brazil's president, you know, they're going to host COP, uh, you know, in a couple of years, which is going to be a really important COP. He said pretty much the world is spending, you know, more on arms than it is on on climate finance. Uh, one of the more interesting speeches I thought came from uh, the Barbados PM Mia Motley. So she essentially said that COP is, is sometimes or can be in danger of being a sort of a media frenzy, and we're at risk of becoming a, you know, it's a risk of becoming a, a media soundbite, and the world is a lot more complex than that. Um, so let's talk money, Tim. We've seen so many funds and financial pledges so far in this first week of COP. Uh, There's more than $20 billion in pledges that have been made so far to the Green Climate Fund. It's become the largest international fund dedicated to supporting climate action in developing countries. The UAE itself has also launched a $30 billion climate fund called Altera. How important are these funds in global climate action and what exactly are they financing? Yeah, so finance is another of these issues that you come to any COP and you know it's going to be a big talking point. And one of the big aims that leaders have had is to put in as much public money as they can that then also generates more private money. And so the $30 billion fund you mentioned that the UAE is financing, the objective of that is that you could ultimately raise as much as $250 billion by mobilizing private capital, because pretty much everyone agrees that the vast sums we're talking about here for things like the energy transition and for things like adaptation to warmer temperatures are not going to be financed by governments alone. 
And you mentioned the Green Climate Fund. A big part of that was that the US committed to put in several billion dollars, although that does still have to go through the US Congress. But still, there have been quite significant financial pledges. At least 134 leaders have endorsed a UAE declaration on sustainable agriculture, resilient food systems and climate action. John, what do we need to know about this declaration? Declaration on food was one of the major non-negotiated outcomes from the summit, and it was led by the, the UAE climate minister, Mariam Almeri. Essentially what it is, it's uh, uh, more than 100 leaders have pledged to, to put farming um, really at the heart of their climate plans. And that's important because, you know, emissions from farming account for about a third of the world's greenhouse ga- gas footprint. So it's pretty critical. I interviewed uh, the minister a few days ago and she said, like, coming into the summit, she was hoping to get maybe about 80, 80 leaters. I mean, she got about 130. So that was a, a pretty good achievement. And again, it goes it goes back. This really goes back again to the these impacts from climate change are really hitting people like small farmers, you know, on the front lines. And this is a really important way of raising awareness about that. So 50 oil and gas companies have said they will commit to curbing methane and CO2 emissions. It's a non-binding pledge that will see producers work to near zero upstream methane emissions and uh, zero routine flaring by 2030 and net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Also included is $1 billion was raised towards efforts to reduce the amount of methane in the Earth's atmosphere. Tim, what does this announcement mean? Yeah, so this is a big announcement that's coming from the private sector rather than government, and it includes some of the big players in the oil and gas sector like Adnoc and Aramco and major global players like Shell and ExxonMobil. And they've committed to net zero operations by 2050. They are also going to tackle methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas that doesn't get talked about quite as much as carbon dioxide, but it's it's very potent and, and there's been significant efforts at this COP to reduce it. Now, wider discussions about a long-term phase out or phase down of fossil fuels are, are still to reach their conclusion. I'm sure we'll come to that. But this declaration shows us what the oil and gas industry is thinking and how it sees its future in the energy mix of the world. You've both been reporting on one of COP28's central tasks, which is delivering a verdict on global climate policy that must be agreed by almost 200 countries. We've seen many drafts so far of the first global stock take. Um, Can you just explain what is that and what's included in these drafts? Okay, so the short explanation is this is the key text that's going to come out of this COP that decides a sort of battle plan for the way forward on climate change. The slightly longer explanation is eight years ago, the world signed what was called the Paris Agreement, which committed that the world would try to hold global warming to 1.5 degrees, because if you do that, then the limits of climate change are a lot less. And it specifically set a date that said in 2023, We'll take the first ever collective stock take, the first ever collective sort of report card on how we're doing and achieving that. And now here we are in 2023, we're doing that for the first time. And as well as assessing how far we've come, the text that's currently being negotiated will also set out how the world plans to take the next few steps, because it's pretty clear that it's going to say we're not on track for 1.5. And so what's being debated is how we go about reducing that gap. John, do you have anything you want to add to that? The stock take text, we've seen several iterations of it so far as negotiators work through it. And some, one of the key issues is, is, is the future of fossil fuels, which are the main driver you know, of emissions. There's a lot of talk about what we might see in any final text, whether it's phased down, whether it's phased out, or whether unabated might, might occur. But if fossil fuel language, was, like such as that, was to get into a, fu- a final text decision, that would be really uh, quite, quite an impressive outcome. And... You yourself were at COP27 in Egypt last year. From your perspective, 
How did the discussions and the outcomes from COP28 here in Dubai compare to previous climate conferences? Um, are you sensing any shift in momentum, any increase in urgency? I was at COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh. It was a, a, I think it was a difficult COP. I think that would be fair to say. The, there was issues around organisation. There was issues around negotiations. Things moved really, uh, really slowly. There was a lot of frustration among negotiating blocks at the, at the pace of negotiations, and it overran. It was supposed to finish on the Friday and went into Sunday morning. It did manage to to end with a loss and damage deal in the very early closing hours. Um, this year, it's different. It's uh, it's the energy is is very different. The momentum is a bit different. But cops do tend to go in cycles. Uh, you know, there's usually a smaller cop, big cop, smaller cop, big cop. So this cop has been mandated to to deliver on the stock take. So there's much more at stake at this one, I would say. Um, it's also double the size. Uh, so there's a lot, even, even just walking around and experiencing, there's a lot more energy. And as we move forward into the second week of COP28, which will start on Friday, Tim, what are you looking out for in terms of potential announcements, developments, anything that could shape the narrative on climate change and sustainability? Yeah, so as, as John said, the the flurry of announcements that you get at the start of a COP tends to go a bit quieter in the second week as people go into the negotiating rooms. They're often battling over single words or single sentences on things like fossil fuels. So that will be the key debate to watch. But there'll still be other talks going on, even within the stock take, although um, fossil fuels are the main debate. Uh, campaigners have been telling us, particularly from developing countries, don't forget about adaptation, don't forget about finance. And so there'll be lots more discussions to watch on that. So we're just going to end on a more personal note. So I just want to ask what the most memorable or impactful moments have been for each of you during this first week of COP28. Tim, we'll stick with you for now. Yeah, so one really interesting moment a few days ago was when some protesters came into the Blue Zone, which is managed by the UN, and called for a ceasefire in Gaza. They were uh, joined by activists who were campaigning for, for climate justice and, and justice in various forms. And it was a peaceful protest and really quite a, a well-behaved and respectful protest um, within this UN zone. And it, it definitely made an impression on the people who were there. John? I would agree with that. What, what Tim was saying is very, very interesting to see that and very interesting to see the world's media uh, be in the UAE and be looking at these issues and be questioning Emirati officials at press conferences about these issues. It's, it's, it's quite, quite interesting to watch that. On a personal note, I think generally with COPs, I've been asked a lot, what's the point of COP and why are we here? That seems to be a very, very, very much a repeated question. I think it, it, one of the most important things for me is, it, like I said, it's very easy to be cynical about this process, mm -hmm. uh, but you, you do have these really small countries with a voice at the table. I mean, I would particularly point out Samoa, you know, these, these countries are really dealing with a lot of terrible effects from climate change, yet they're here also negotiating with, with the top top countries. They all have a seat at the table. So I think that's a, a really good thing and it's, it's something that we need to remind ourselves of. Great, thank you, John. Thank you, Tim. Well, that's it for today. Remember to subscribe to be on the Headlines podcast and follow the Nationals Business Extra podcast as well for more in-depth discussions on the intersection of business, climate change and environmental responsibility. This episode was produced by Doa Farid, Phil Green and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Sarah Forster. <laughs>